Ooh. So how's everybody doing today? Everybody doing good? Awesome. It's a Valentine's Day. Amen. That's one person was excited about that. So it's uh it's um I know sometimes it's single awareness day for everybody else and I, I get that, I understand that. Uh, we have been in a series called Purpose, and uh, typically in February, I preach through a series on relationships. So typically in February, we talk about relationships all February, but this year, the Lord kind of laid on my heart to really stick to purpose. Uh, so I boiled down relationships to one Sunday, uh, which is today on Valentine's Day, because it's very rare that Valentine's Day falls on a Sunday. Uh, so today, we're going to be talking about the purpose of marriage. Uh, but as I, as I shared uh, throughout the week and in the last week and the week before that there is something for everybody in this message. And even if you're not married today, uh, there's stuff here for you. Uh, so I wanted to make sure that you're aware of that. You didn't say, okay, he's preaching on marriage today. I came on the wrong Sunday. Uh, don't, don't, don't say that, right? Let's, let's, let's listen and, and listen with our heart and listen with our mind and, and see what the Lord has to say today. Amen. Uh, why don't you guys turn with me to Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5, and uh, guys, if you would hit some lights for me up there, just transition us into the, the other lighting, I would appreciate that. There we go. Now you can see. So if you have a digital Bible, uh, just turn to Genesis chapter 2 first, and then I'll give you a little bit of a heads up. You can turn to Ephesians 5 later. If you're on a, a regular Bible, and just mark both places. We're going to kind of uh, intro into that for a little bit before we dive into the scripture. So we're going to spend a few minutes just talking about the purpose of marriage first. Uh, how many of you know that most people, the majority of the people probably sitting in this room or most rooms like it today, um, desire marriage? or will get married, right, even if you're not married. So the majority of the people are married, will get married, or at least desire marriage, right? Now, the Apostle Paul talks about uh, people in, in the Bible who have a gift of singleness, right? So there are people who have a gift of singleness. And what is the, what is the gift of singleness? It means you are 100% completely okay with being single. Like, that's just, that's just who you are. You're okay with it. Like, there's, there's no stress or strain. Now, listen, uh, there's some people in this room right now who are single, and when I said that there's a gift of singleness, you started to freak out a little bit on the inside. You're like, Lord, hell, I hope I don't have that gift, you know? <laughs> you know? So if, if you're freaking out a little bit thinking about having the gift of singleness, you don't have the gift of singleness. So I just wanted, to, I wanted you to be aware of that, okay? Uh, if you desire marriage in your heart in the slightest, you don't have the gift of singleness, right? And it's okay to desire marriage. You know, a lot of times uh, in church we play down marriage because uh, we don't want to offend non-married people, right? Or we don't want to offend single people. But the truth is we as the church body should, should hold marriage in the highest sanctity. We should, we should respect and love marriage because it's an institution that God created. So whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you've been through a bad marriage, uh, whether you're widowed, whether you're, you're in this room today and you're in a marriage but you wish you weren't, you know, whatever, whatever position that you find yourself today, can I start off by saying this, that we as the children of God should always honor marriage. We should always honor it in the way that we talk about it, the way that we discuss it. 
the way that we handle it, right? We should honor marriage regardless. And even those who have a gift of singleness that, are, that may be in this room, which is, a gift of singleness is actually pretty rare. Uh, but even those who have a gift of singleness in this room, uh, still we honor the sanctity of marriage because God created it. Amen? So, so marriage has been redefined over the course of the last 10 years in the world, right? Uh, marriage has been a hot topic over the last decade or so and in a reference of who can get married, right? So it's kind of, uh, that's been the argument, the discussion that's going on in the world. Of course, we are Bible-believing followers of Christ, and we understand that God created marriage, so God gets to define it, right? Whoever created something gets to define it. If, if I created a gadget and started to put it on the market, uh, people couldn't come to me and say, well, that gadget is for this. And I'm like, no, I created it for this, right? So, so God gets to define marriage because he's the one who created it. And, of course, marriage in the eyes of God is always between a man and a woman with the culmination of the engagement ending in a ceremony before God and the consummation of the marriage between two married adults who fit together, right? And God created us, male and female, to fit together. If we have any plumbers or electricians in the room, or maybe you've done any plumbing or electrician at, at, at your house. Electrician, is that a word? I don't, I don't think so. If you've done any electrical work at your house, you know, you've probably gone to Home Depot or something, and you notice that they use terms like male and female, Right, And you know that those two terms go together. So if I buy a male end with a female end, I know they're going to fit together. right? So, so that's kind of how God created marriage, to know that we fit together. But how many of you know in the church today, and all of us in this place today, hopefully the definition of marriage is not in question. Uh, it's, it's, it's not, or at least it shouldn't be. Uh, but if, the def if it's not the definition of marriage that's in question today, then I would say the problem across churches across the United States and, and, and everywhere, in the, uh, possibly even in other parts of the world, but specifically in the United States, is what is its purpose? What is its purpose? We don't have to sit today and talk for hours on the definition of it because the Bible very clearly states that. So we don't need to discuss the definition today, but we need to discuss what is its purpose. Uh, divorce today, guys, no matter the percentage, is too high in the world. There are some arguments on what the divorce percentage is. Some people say it's 50%. Uh, Sheldy Feldon wrote a book called The Good News About Marriage where she uh, said it, it's actually somewhere around 38%. But how many of you know that no matter what percentage it is in the world, it's still too high? And then there's obviously, there's a difference between divorce uh, percentage in the world and divorce percentage in the church. Now, I'm not talking about people who just uh, claim the name of Christ, but I'm talking about people who uh, attend church on a regular basis, be a part of the body of Christ. They, they go to classes, go to small groups, sit in Sunday services, they worship. You know, people that do this on a regular basis, there's a, there's a gap in percentages between the divorce rate in the world and, and the divorce rate in the church. But no matter what, which shall Feldon says is, is down around 18% in the church. But no matter what the percentage of divorce is in the church, can I tell you this today? It's still too high. Right? It's still too high. So divorce, no matter what the percentage, is too high. But I'm talking today uh, in reference about no matter what the divorce rate is, I mean, you know, Jesus didn't outright condemn divorce uh, because he loves people more than he loves institutions. 
So sometimes you run through uh, seasons of divorce, and probably in this room, with the, with the statistics the way they are, there's probably a large portion of this room who have walked through a divorce. Now understand this, I am not condemning divorce in the areas of uh, abuse, emotional abuse, mental and physical abuse, somebody who has just put your life through the ringer, right? Uh, uh, unrepentant adultery. Somebody who has cheated on you time and time again. I'm not, I'm not in here today uh, talking about uh, that that divorce rate needs to change because I'm a realist, right? Now, can God change anybody? Absolutely. But we also have to be willing to lay on his operating table to be changed, right? So, so I'm not in here to condemn anybody who has left a divorce because they've been abused, been, uh, been cheated on, been dealt with. That's not the condemnation uh, today. I do not want you to receive that condemnation. Also, abandonment. You know, abandonment is another one. I don't, I don't want you to receive that, that, uh, that condemnation today. But what I want to do with talking about the purpose of marriage today is to talk about its purpose. And I believe this. Marriages are ending apart from the, the things we just talked about. Marriages are ending today because they don't really understand the purpose. People are getting out of marriages today because they don't really understand the purpose. So people who get married not understanding the purpose and then never make an attempt within marriage to understand the purpose find themselves in marriages that end because they didn't understand the purpose. You see the, the vicious cycle there? So we come into marriage not understanding the purpose. And, and I tell you today, there, there's some people in the room who are engaged. There's some people in the room who are, are, who are actively seeking engagement. <laughs> you know, there's, some, there's some people in the room that desire marriage and you want to be married. But I want you to know first and foremost that of all the purposes of marriage, uh, we're going to talk about the most important ones today. So some of the things that we decide are purposes of marriage are actually an outflow of a good marriage. Right? Some of the things that we desire about marriage are actually an outflow uh, from a good marriage to begin with. So I'm talking about the, the, the platform, the purpose, the base before you add anything onto it. What is the purpose from God about marriage? People come into and desire marriage for a few different reasons. What are those reasons? Uh, number one, they just plain old don't want to be lonely anymore. Right? I, I just don't want to be lonely. Right, it's people who don't have the gift of, of singleness, and, and maybe you go home to an empty house, or maybe you go home to an empty room, and you just don't want to be lonely anymore. Like, I just, I just don't want loneliness to be in my life. Or maybe uh, if you're probably more than likely a guy, uh, and you want allowable and sin-free sex, right? You want sex that doesn't leave you feeling guilty, right? You want to be able to have sex with somebody, and God says, whoo, that's good, bless that, right? Some of you are like, Ooh, uh, what's he talking about this morning? But, but I got to tell you, God created it, right? And if God created it, blessed it, and said, that is good, right? And he said, it, it's for uh, the confines of marriage. It's for two people who come into the, the, uni the unity, the covenant of marriage, and it's made for them, right? And I made it for them, and it's beautiful. And when it's, when it's two people doing it God's way within the covenant of marriage, uh, the Holy Spirit is even there in it. Amen? Some of y'all got real uncomfortable right there, right now. <laughs> I want you to know, sex within marriage is a beautiful thing. God blesses it. God, God loves it. He says the marriage bed is undefiled, right? And, and there's something 
about marriage sex that is anointed by God. There's something totally different than sex outside of the covenant of marriage. And I'm defining sex by all means. Sex outside the covenant of marriage could be pornography. It could be dealing with with any of those issues. But sex outside of the covenant of marriage always leaves you feeling empty, always leaves you feeling guilty, especially if you have any relationship with Christ, right? So sex outside the covenant of marriage leaves you feeling empty and guilty. Sex within the covenant of marriage leaves you feeling satisfied. Amen? You can laugh at that. That's okay. Right? So some people want allowable and sin-free sex. Some people desire for a family and the American dream of a house, a picket fence, 2.5 uh, kids. And you might not after hearing my grandson scream all service. Right? But 2.5 kids and a dog, right? How many of you know that's the American dream? Right? We want to get married. We want a house with a picket fence and 2.5 kids and a dog. I'm not sure how you have 2.5 kids, but it's in there, right? 2.5 kids, and maybe that's two kids and one on the way. Maybe that's what that is. I don't know. But 2.5 kids and a dog. Now, notice it does not say cat. I just, I'm picking on my daughter-in-law, Katie. It, it does not say cat. Why? Because cats are, are a source of stress. Right. And dogs are a source of, of just uh, pleasure. Right. So so uh, the next thing they want and I'll move from that quickly in case there's any cat lovers in the room. Uh, the next thing that they want is they want to be happy. People want to be happy within marriage. Right. They want they want to be happy. Happiness is what they're looking for. And lastly, people are looking for security in marriage. So people are looking for financial security and people are looking for emotional security in marriage. Uh, so divorce in large percentage of the time adds to the poverty level. In the majority of the time when, when a family splits because of divorce, the po poverty level raises because the incomes that were joined together to create one unit and one household and run and, and take care of this group of kids is now split in between two households. Right. So it, it adds to the poverty level. So when you look at the poverty level in the United States or in Citrus County, uh, if you look at the poverty level here in Inverness, I, I'm going to tell you today that unequivocally that poverty level is higher because of divorce. And that if, if you didn't have as many people trying to make it on their own, but you had two couples uh, coming together with two incomes, which is the way we do it in America. Now, it's not always, but it's the way most of us do it in America. You have, you have a couple with two incomes coming into a household. You're at a better plane than you are without it, right? So divorce adds to that. Uh, so how many of you know and believe that most people get married because they believe they found their perfect soulmate? Right? So some people come into marriage because they're, they're, they're looking for and they're trying to find their perfect soulmate. It's, it's, have you heard that, that phrasing before? Right? If you're on social media, you see it all the time. Apparently, I'm the only one that's heard it or nobody wants to raise their hand. Right? Oh, thank you. Just participate with me. Help me out this morning. So, so if, you, if you've been on social media, you've heard the word, oh, he's my soulmate. I found my soulmate, right? And especially on Valentine's Day, you see lots of soulmate language today, right? So, so a lot of people get married because they believe they found their perfect soulmate. Some people get divorced because they believe they found their perfect soulmate. And it wasn't their spouse, right? Sometimes you run into that situation, right? But it's all based around uh, looking for the perfect mate. I want to give you a quote today from Stanley Hauerwas. He's, he's a professor at Duke Divinity School. And he says this. Uh, the assumption is, 
that there is someone just right for you to marry. And if you look closely enough, you will find that just right person. This assumption overlooks a crucial aspect of marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. Every single time. We always marry the wrong person. We never know who we marry really well. And we just think we do. And then, or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will most definitely change. People change. People, people change who they are. So for marriage, and this is the last sentence, I'd love for you to just pay attention to this portion. For marriage being the enormous thing that it means, we are no longer the same person after we enter it. So if you believe you found the right person for marriage, don't worry, because once you marry them, they will change, right? And they'll, they'll either change in one way or the other, but most often marriage is so enormous and so impactful because God created it to be a certain way that when we come into marriage, it changes who we are. It changes who we are. The truth is no one you marry is the right person. Part of the outflow of a biblical-based marriage is that it helps to mold you into the right person. Nobody you marry is the right person. But part of a biblical-based marriage is this, that throughout the course of that marriage, as you bump heads, how many of you know marriage, sometimes you bump heads, right? Just a few of us. Everybody else has perfect marriages, right? But, but you come into marriage, you bump heads, man. It gets rough. It gets tough at times. Uh, but in that bumping, it changes us. In that bumping, it makes us think about who we are and who we married, right? In that bumping and, and, and moving around and knocking heads, it changes who we are. So God indeed, how many of you know God indeed plays a role in our love life? He does. Now, sometimes we say, ooh, it was a God thing. God lined it up, set it up, and this is perfect. And, and I will tell you this. I have married people who told me their God story. It was a God thing all the way pastor there wasn't there wasn't God magically made this man and dropped him into my lap it was the craziest thing I was sitting there at Starbucks eating a, eat, drinking a, cu a cup of coffee and, and eating a cinnamon bun and, and God just dropped this man right in my lap and you know just that morning I was thinking about uh, pink and he was wearing a pink shirt you believe that that is God and then about six months later, they're in my office going, I don't know who this man is, but I think the devil brought him into my life. <laughs> Whoo, Pastor Steve, I just, I just need to talk to you because I need permission to get divorced from this man because this, is, this man is the devil. So, so we, how many of you know we're, we're fickle? We're fickle people, man. We are. We change our mind all the time. Right? My wife changes her mind all the time, right? <laughs> but I do too. We, we change our minds all the time, but I see it so often because my wife and I's first calling and first ministry was marriage ministry, and, and we still do conferences and go and, and do marriage events. We didn't do any this past year and a half that we've been here because, one, we came in and wanted to devote 100% of our time to the church, and two, COVID, but it is what it is, you know, and, and we go and do these events, and I deal with people all the time, and I hear their story. And, and when we do Marriage Restored Weekends, we start off listening and hearing and talking about our love story, how God brought us together and how special it was, and then what a hell it turned into, right? 
we go from uh, God sent them to the devil sent them, right? And, and we go really quick. It happens in the spur of a moment. So uh, it, it, God does indeed uh, play a role in our love life. I believe he does. But part of the outflow of a biblical-based marriage is that it helps to mold us into the right person. That when marriage gets tough, when marriage is a struggle, that struggle is there for a reason. It gets tough for a reason. If, if your marriage was perfect all the time, it would never increase your character. It would never build who you are. But because marriage is tough and marriage is hard, it builds our character. It increases us, especially if there's none of the aforementioned things that I talked about earlier happening in the marriage. And you just decide it's, it's getting tough, but you decide I'm going to stick with it. Like I'm going to stay in it. Now, I understand a lot of times you maybe didn't make the choice to not stay in it, right? That is not your fault. If somebody decided to leave and you were fighting for it, that is not your fault. You did what you could do before God, but it, but it does indeed take two, surrendering their life to God, to have a biblically-based, healthy marriage. It takes two. Amen? Amen. So eHarmony, how many of you met on eHarmony? Okay. One brave person. I knew you guys did. That's, I, was, I was throwing it out there. But, but eHarmony had an ad a few years back that people were discussing why they were looking for a mate. One person said this, I'm looking for the perfect soulmate. There's that word again, right? Someone who accepts me just as I am. Woo, hallelujah. Won't ever try to change me. Affirms me and does never criticizes me. Releases me to be myself and does not shackle me. In the words of Garth Brooks, I'm a wild horse and you can't fence me in. Right? But they're looking for a marriage. You ever heard anything any more funny? But we say it ourselves. I want to come into, I want to look for somebody in a relationship that will let me be me, that will never change me, never criticize me, never pressure me to change, never, never speak to me about who I am. I just want basically a, a living robot doll that will sit in the corner, right, and bring me a glass of iced tea on occasion, right? I'm looking, how many of you know uh, uh, the perfect soulmate for me, this is what she's saying, feels that I am perfect just the way I am, Right? How many of you know, ain't a person in this room perfect just the way you are? We all got things to work with. That's why we go to the gym. That's why we read the Bible. That's why we try to eat healthier on occasion, right? We'll eat McDonald's six days in a row and then eat a salad and think we did something. I'm talking about myself here, right? We, we, we try to change. So we're looking for a perfect soulmate feeling that I am perfect just the way I am. But how many of you know, have you ever heard the phrase love is blind? Love is blind indeed, but it's only blind for about 18 to 24 months. Love is blind for 18 to 24 months. After that, eyes are wide open, right? So, so when I do premarital counseling, I use a program called Simbus, and we walk couples through it, and we, we always tell them, always tell them uh, the best thing for you to do. Now, does, does it work the other way too sometimes? Right. And it's, and it's OK. God's in it. God. God works it. And two people submitted to God, even if you get married quicker than you should. But you're both submitted to God. It, it works sometimes. Right. But the best thing scientifically for people to do is not to get married until they have known each other for 24 months. 
matter of fact, 18 to 24 months is the, is the perfect range to begin talking about getting married. That's the perfect range. Why is that? Because a dude can hide his junk for 18 to 24 months. And then it's welcome to the junkyard, right? All of the bad qualities, all the old rusty cars, all the stuff starts falling out of the closet, right? And can I tell you this, guys? A woman can hide her crazy. For about 18 to 24 months. After 18 to 24 months, she just starts to let that crazy fly. And, I, and I, will, I will tell you this, man. Women are different from men. Men always perceive those differences as crazy. So when we talk about a woman be crazy, we're not necessarily calling you crazy, but we're saying you're so different from us that it is crazy. Right? So, so we understand that when we meet uh, uh, people in our lives, people can hide all of their bad qualities. They can hide everything that they, that, that, that man, I can't, I can't do this yet. Like, like a man will take a bath the whole 18 to 24 months. And then all of a sudden he stops showering and you're like, what in the world? Like, what happened to you? And, and at first she's like, well, maybe it's just today. You know, he didn't have time to shower. And then the next date they're like, he still stinks. And he's got some really long nose hair all of a sudden. Men will trim their nose hair for 18 to 24 months. After that, it starts popping out everywhere, right? We don't take care of that. That's for older men, guys that are under like 30. Just so you know, when you hit about 30, hair starts coming all kinds of places, right? You got you to deal with that. You got to deal with that. Amen. Woo, I forgot where I was. <laughs> so it says, let's look for someone that when we enter a relationship won't affect me at all. As a matter of fact, I won't even notice they're there most of the time. It'll be like not being married. That's perfect. Being married but not being married. In Marriage Restored, we talk about that to couples who are dealing with strife and trouble and, and stress. And we, we call that married living single. You're married, but you live two completely different lives. You're married, but you have two completely different set of friends. You're married, but you have two completely different schedules. You're married, but you don't connect. You don't spend time together, right? Those are, those are married, living, single. So obviously, this is the view of the world's covenant, right? The, the, the world views this as covenant, but covenant also is almost non-existent in today's English language, especially here in the United States, right? Except for maybe found in churches or law firms, right? In those places, we see the word covenant, but most of the time in, in any other society, we don't see the word covenant. But can I say this? To enter covenant with a spouse means that you and they are going to adjust and change to better suit a newfound state of being. When you enter covenant with your spouse, you're saying, when you walk down that aisle, when you say the vows, you're saying that for better or worse, I'm going to adjust myself and change myself so that I flow into this new state of being. Marriage is a new state of existence. It's completely different from singleness. In every aspect, every part of being in a covenant marriage is completely different from being single. It changes your existence. Your whole existence changes, which brings us to point one today. The primary purpose of marriage is to change you. The primary purpose of marriage is to change you. So if you're looking for the soulmate, 
uh, like that ad says, that, man, I'm looking for somebody who thinks I'm just fine just the way I am, right? They will lie to you for 18 to 24 months. And then after that, they will start picking you apart, I promise, right? So, so and most women say, yeah, I'm going to marry him, and then I'm going to change him, right? Most women feel that way. But, and is change a part of the process? Absolutely. Is it your job to do it? No. It's your job to change yourself, Amen. It's your job to change yourself. So you can't come into marriage. Uh, it's a Holy Spirit's job to change us. Right. And it's our job to begin to allow the Holy Spirit to change us. Right. And if you see changes that need to be made in your spouse, it is your job to get on your knees and pray for the Holy Spirit to make those changes in your spouse. Right. It's something that we should do. Genesis 2.24, guys. And if you're there, you kind of uh, flip to it. It's a, it's a short verse, but... Genesis 2.24 says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Right? That's a state of change. That's a change in your state of existence. That no longer are you alone, but now you are connected. And at consummation of that marriage, you are now one flesh. You're joined together. Right? You are one. It changes your whole state of existence. Marriage is supposed to change you from being an inward-focused being to being an outward-focused being. How many of you know that marriage and kids make you less selfish? Right? We're pretty selfish till we start popping out some kids. And then all of a sudden, life ain't all about what you want anymore. Life's about taking care of some kids and meeting their needs and doing what you need to do. We're all pretty selfish until we put a ring on it, and then all of a sudden you've got somebody else in your life that you've got to contend with, deal with, think about, be a, make a part of your life, join together in covenant. We're all pretty selfish until those moments. So what does marriage do? Marriage stomps on our selfishness. It lets us know that it's not all about us. Marriage is designed to change us. Marriage is designed to change who we are, right? So all of your decisions now affect two people, not one. Here's some, some small and large decisions. What do we eat? How many of you know that's a question that gets asked almost every day in a marriage? And most of the time it's the guy doing the asking and the woman refusing to answer. <laughs> right? But after 18 to 24 months, women start telling you what they want to eat. I just want you to know that, right? So, so what do we eat? Where do we live? Where do we move to? What house do we buy? What house do we rent? What city do we reside in? What state do we live in? That's, that's, that takes two people now to make that decision instead of one person. Uh, where do we go to church? What's going to be our, our place of, of spiritual feeding? I, I cringe when I, when I hear of, of, of a couple where the wife goes to one church and the husband goes to the other. And it happens all the time. But can I tell you, that's a deficit in the marriage, not a strength, right? Couples, I, I always encourage couples to make sure that they go to the same church, that they, that they go somewhere together, right? Um, how about do we spend money or not? One of the biggest sources of fights in a relationship. Can I spend that $3, honey? <laughs> you know, can, can I spend money or not? That's the that's hugest uh, part of a fight. How many of you know when you're single, it, it, you don't have to ask nobody else? You, except Visa. You, you might be asking Visa, right? Can I, can I buy this or not, right? But, but, you, but when you're single and you've got cash and you're paying for it out of your own account, you don't have to ask anybody else. But when you come into marriage before you make a financial decision that is, is, is agreed upon at a certain level, you should communicate about it as husband and wife. 
right? My wife and I have always had an understanding, and, and I think it's somewhere around 50 bucks, right? If we're going to spend more than 50 bucks, we talk to each other about it. If she wants to spend 20 bucks, she don't have to call me and say, can I spend 20 bucks, right? Hey, how's the account look? You know, she doesn't have to do that, right? But if it's around 50 bucks, we, we make that kind of decision together, right? It, listen, if I'm going to buy a bass boat, I'm going to run that by my wife, right, before I buy the bass boat. If I'm going to buy a new vehicle, I'm going to run that by my wife before I buy a new vehicle. Because if you don't, you might be sleeping in it, right? You better make sure that seat is comfortable, because you might be sleeping in it. Uh, how about this? Do I decide to quit my job without speaking to my spouse? No, right? Life things, you got to come together and learn to make decisions together. It's part of communication and it's part of building who you are as husband and wife, right? God says in Genesis that a consummation in the marriage, you spiritually become one flesh. That means that you come together and, and make decisions. And this, this, guys, is why divorce is so painful. Because divorce is tearing apart something that has been knit together by God, right? So it's, it's a painful moment. Even if you were happy to see them go and they were trouble for you from the start, divorce still hurts your soul. It still requires a time of healing. Because if you go see a surgeon and you got something that needs to be cut off you, right? If you've got a growth that needs to be cut off you, that's, a, that's you know, something that you'll be happy to see go. But let's say you're losing a limb or you're losing a, an appendage or you're losing something and the surgeon has to take it. Maybe it's a diabetic situation and you're about to lose your foot, right? It's something that, you, uh, that has been a part of your flesh and you don't want to see it go. So, so no matter what the divorce came from, if it was something you wanted to see happen or something you didn't want to see happen, it still requires a time of healing in your life. You still have a time of healing. That's why I always say, man, don't, don't jump out of a divorce right into another relationship. Because if you do, it's going to make that relationship that much harder to make work. But if you allow God to move in you and heal you for a season, and whatever season that is, is between you and God. I'm not putting a time frame on you. And, I'm, and I definitely don't put a time frame on God. Right? That, that, that's between you and God. But whatever that season is, seek God with everything that you have and allow him to heal you before you get into to being in another relationship that's going to lead to be joining the flesh once again. Right? That you make sure we let God heal us in this moment. So how many of you know that getting used to the idea of being one flesh with another person takes a little time? It takes a little time and it takes a lot of maturing. It takes a lot of maturing because you have to get used to sharing a, a bathroom space with another human being. Another human being wants to use the shower when you're in the shower. Another human being wants to use the toilet when you're on the toilet. Another human being wants to go in and brush their teeth when you're trying to put on your makeup, right? And, and it begins to be a, a struggle and a, 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 a struggle of space that you begin to struggle around because you're sharing a bathroom space. Now, some of you guys are like, well, we had this gigantic bathroom with two sinks. Well, God bless you. I'm happy for you. <laughs> so happy for you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, but a lot of us, especially when Jessica and I first got married, man, when we first got married, our bathroom could have fit like in that drum cage. Like it was small. Like I had to, it was kind of cool though, because we were brushing skin just to squeeze by each other, man, and I was okay with that. You know what I mean? I was okay with that. But but our whole bathroom was like that big. And, and listen, if this is too much information, just plug your ears. But when if you got to sit on a toilet 
and your thighs and your inner arms are touching the wall on both sides, it's too small, right? <laughs> That's a small space. Listen, I've got to do something about those stalls in the men's room over here because the only one that I can fit in is the one on the end without another end place. The other ones, I'm like bouncing off of the edges. They're, they're hitting me right about my armpits when I'm trying to get in there. <laughs> So if some of y'all are like, why are these stalls so small? Listen, I'm with you. So I'm with you. We're going to do something about that. Amen? Amen. So sharing a bathroom space is tough. Sharing a closet space is tough, right? My, my, uh, my kids, Colin and Katie, when they moved into their house they're in now, it's, it's an older, uh, like, a, like an antique house uh, in, in Emerness here. It's a really old house, and it doesn't have much closet space at all. It's got like two little tiny closets and, uh, and Katie's, like, hanging her stuff up and going, Colin, I don't know what you're going to do with your stuff. Like, where, where's it going to go, you know? But listen, Colin uh, grew up in my house. He puts everything on the floor anyway. So I did, it wasn't a big deal, right? <laughs> it's all right. Unless Katie has trained him better than, than we did, right? So closet space is hard. Drawer space is tough, right? These are all things that are hard to share within a marriage. But can I tell you this? There's things that are even more important, like emotional space. All of a sudden, in the marriage, you have to make room for how somebody else feels. All of a sudden, in a marriage, you've got to think about how somebody else is feeling in your thoughts, your, your decisions, your words, the things you say. You've got to think about how it affects somebody else. And then heart space. You've got to think about somebody else's heart. So you've got to think about their emotions. You've got to think about their heart and their mental space. You've got to find out what they think before you make decisions. Right? So coming into marriage as one, you learn how to give space in the physical areas of your house, but you've also got to learn how to give space in the emotional, the mental, and the spiritual areas of who you are. Because all of a sudden, you're giving somebody access to your heart 24-7. When you marry somebody, you're give, the, the definition, if, if you're in a marriage and you're not giving them access to your heart, then you're shut off from them and you're hindering the marriage. But if you're in a marriage and you're giving them access to your heart the way the marriage is designed, it can be exhausting. It can be tiring. But there's some huge benefits that come out of it. And connecting and growing with another human being in that way and learning how to do life together. It, it, listen, the, the longer uh, you go, the easier it gets. Which doesn't mean that you run into, into rough, you don't ever run into rough times after you've been married uh, about 30 years or so. Right? There's still going to be some rough times. There's still tough moments. Jessica and I will be married 25 years this October. And let me tell you, there's still some moments that we bump, in, we bump heads. Right? There's still those moments. Why is that? Because we're still in our flesh sometimes. Right? We're still in a fleshly body. We still have moments where we bump heads. But this is where God shines through is in those moments where you bump heads, you take a step back, you take a breath, and you consider another human being. And if you do that is when you're most like Christ. Which brings us to our next point. The spiritual purpose of marriage is to make you more like Jesus. The spiritual purpose of marriage is to make you more like Jesus. Gary Thomas says this uh, famously about marriage in his book, Sacred Marriage. He said, what if marriage is more about making you holy than making you happy? Most of the time, what we're looking for is our own happiness in marriage, which is a selfish viewpoint. But what if in our marriage, we weren't looking for our own happiness, but we were looking for holiness? And then can I tell you, as Christ makes us more holy, he makes me more happy. When I'm more holy, the happier I get. When I'm more holy, you know why? Because when you're holy, little things don't, don't take you apart. 
When, you, when you're more holy, you can overlook things that would normally make you mad, right? Instead of anger piling up inside of you, you're, you're piling up inside you. Hey, honey, you go ahead. I'm going to give way. I'm going to step back, let you do your thing. And when you're done, I'll, I'll take care of me. You know what I mean? And when you have that mindset, it makes you more happy because you're less angry, right? So holiness brings you happiness. But the whole point of marriage is not about your happiness. It's about your holiness. Uh, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. I'll give you a quick second to get there. We're going to start reading in verse 22, and it reads like this. Wives... Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So there's a lot going on in these verses. And these verses have been used sometimes as a weapon rather than a help, right? Sometimes uh, men have thrown, uh, men who don't know any other verse of the Bible know that one. (laughs) Men who don't even study the Bible haven't, don't even know what comes after that verse, but they know that verse. They can quote it. Woman, Ephesians 5.22. You know? You're supposed to submit to me, right? And, and everybody knows this verse. But how many of you know, uh, even though submission is a dirty word in our culture today, it's all about the context of the rest of the verse, right? It's not about that one moment. And, and I will say this too. All women are not supposed to submit to all men. That's not scriptural or biblical. It says, wives, submit to your own husband, not somebody else's. Right. You come into submission to your own husband. Right. So so in this part, there's a lot going on, but I want to dig out the context of it to understand this writing in Ephesians five. We're going to get theological about marriage for just a moment. Uh, We have to think in kingdom terms, not in world terms. So to understand this scripture, we have to think about what it means in the kingdom of God, not in the world's view of marriage. Right. So we have to understand that Uh, found in this chapter are commands, truths and kingdom insights commands truths and kingdom insights that when viewed with the proper perspectives while pushing down listen listen closely while pushing down our own jaded history and past we have to read this in context of of what god says about marriage while pushing down the bad experiences that we've had before we have to push down a jaded history of how somebody abused and, and misused this portion of scripture in, in your life and maybe left you feeling a bad taste for Ephesians chapter 5, right? We have to push that down within us and we have to understand it from a kingdom perspective, right? So, so we push all of that down and we're talking about the kingdom view of marriages here on earth, but also a kingdom view of our marriage to the Lamb. Our marriage to Jesus Christ. How many of you know we are all the bride of Christ? Every single one of us sitting in this room. And some guys in here are like, wait a minute. Did you just call me a woman? And listen, I'm not getting into pronouns, theys and thems. I'm I'm not getting into that. 
But in the scripture, it says in the book of Ephesians that there is neither male nor female in, in Christ. Right. So so in this scripture, we find places where it calls men and women sons of Christ. It calls men and women sons. And you're like, well, wait a minute. What do you mean? If you haven't read that portion of scripture, I'll, I'll get it to you. I'll post it later. But it, it calls men and women sons in Christ. Right. And why is that? Because in that time, sons were more valuable than daughters. And Jesus and God were, 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 were trying to tell the people that women and men were both equally valuable. So it was calling men and women sons in Christ. And then we find it again where there's neither male nor female in the portion where it calls us male and female on this earth as both the bride of Christ. Right. That we're both called to be the bride of Christ. So what does that mean? That means that we all have some submitting to do. That means we when we talk about submission, it applies to all of us, not just the women in the room, not just the wives in the room. When it comes to submission, it, it talks about all of us in the kingdom culture. So in verse 22, I want to break these down just a little bit. In verse 22, there's a command. Wives, submit to your own husbands. And then there's a kingdom insight. Christianity is all about submission to God. And then there's a truth. The wife submitting to the husband in marriage is a picture of the church submitted to Christ. Why does God ask anything of us and for us to change or to be different or to do? Because we're supposed to mirror image him on this earth. So everything asked of us in life is a mirror image. But everything asked of us within our marriage is to mirror image Christ on this earth. Right? So if we see a wife submitted to a husband in a proper biblical role, it's supposed to make people stop and think, wow, there's something different there than I have. There's something different within the church than outside of the church. There's something different in a biblical marriage than a marriage that's not based on Christ. There's something different going on there, right? So we begin to talk about that and think about that. Marriage is supposed to be a reflection of the kingdom. Verse 23, the command is this. The husband is head of the wife. In today's day and age, that's like a gut punch, right? I, listen, I know. I know it is. I've talked to some, some jerk husbands. Like, I've talked to a few of them. Had them in my office this week. No, not this week. I'm just kidding. But, but I've talked to some people who are jerks, right? And I understand that. Uh, but there's a command in the scripture. The husband is the head of the wife. Then there's a kingdom insight, like Christ is head of the church. Oh, wait a minute. God is building something in the institution of marriage to look similar to the kingdom of Christ. Oh, you mean we're supposed to be uh, mirroring the kingdom of Christ even inside our relationship of our marriage? You mean I can't just go to church on Sunday and, and talk to everybody else uh, really nice and sweet and love on them and serve them and open doors for people and serve coffee to people and, and do that? But when I go home, you mean I can't be mean to my husband? No, you can't. Because God's building something within your marriage that looks like the church. And guys, vice versa. You can't come here and be the perfect man of God at church and go home and be cruel and mean and abusive to your wife. God is not honored in that, and God's pretty upset with you for it if that's where you're at, right? It's something that we need to do as a church is we mirror the body of Christ in our own relationship at home first. Amen? Amen. So the truth is this. There is a hierarchy to the kingdom that works for the benefit of those in covenant, and it's also true of our earthly covenants because, again, marriage 
is a reflection of the kingdom of Christ. Verse 25, now we're getting to the guy's part. This is the part most guys didn't know that was there. The command is this, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What's the kingdom insight? Christ loved us, his bride, so much that he died to his own needs, wants, and desires. You don't believe me? You're like, well, Jesus went to the cross willingly for me. You know, Listen, he did. And nobody could take Jesus' life from him except Jesus. right? He did go to the cross willingly, but he had moments where his own needs, wants, and desires were different than what the plan was. He was 100% man, but he was also 100% God. Right? He was 100% both. That means in his manly form, he had moments where he did not want to do what was asked of him to do in the, in the grand plan to save humanity. And how do you know that? Because in the Garden of Eden, he said, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Right? He said, if there's any other way, let it pass, Lord. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Right? So this is a, is a, is a, a perfect picture of the submission and servant leadership of Jesus wrapped up in one sentence. So as husbands, we're supposed to love our wives in such a way that it mirror images how Jesus loved the church. That even in those moments when you, you wanted to go golfing and she wanted to go to dinner, or those moments when you wanted to watch the football game and she wanted you to really, really want you to watch Chip and Joanne with her. Those are funny examples, but, it, but it, they pop up every day in life. Every day. So, so uh, can I tell you this, guys? You will find a very submissive, holy, loving wife on the other side of washing her with the water of the word and loving her the way Christ loves the church. If she can trust you, then she'll submit to you. If she can't trust you, you've got a battle on your hands. So we have to understand and read this scripture in context. We have to read it in context of what Christ or what God is talking about in this moment. So here's the truth. Husbands being head of the wife is a position of servant leadership, not dictatorship. It's servant leadership. If I love my wife really, really well, and then I ask her to change something or not to do something, it's receptive. If I'm not loving my wife really, really well, and I ask her to change something or do something, it's not receptive, right? So we've got to understand it in context. And then verses 26 through 28, the command is this. Husbands, wash your wife in the word. Care for her body, soul, and spirit. How many of you know he's talking about three different things there? It's not just your place to provide a nice bank account and a house and a nice car to drive, and then so be it. Go live your life. That's not our place. We're supposed to care for our wives' body, soul, and spirit. That means we, we care about providing for their needs. And then we care about her mind, her will, and her emotions. And then we care about her spirit so much that we make sure we lead her spiritually and take her to church and sit right next to her. Unless you're serving somewhere, I get that. But, but bring her to church, right? And if you can and you're not serving that day, sit right next to her and hold her hand. And give me some big amens right now, men. <laughs> Those were women amens. I'm looking for men. There we go. Thank you. See, I was looking for that deep amen. There we go. There we go. Thank you. So the kingdom insight is this, is Jesus is preparing us for our wedding. 
He doesn't just expect us to do all the work and present ourselves to him a flawless bride. But he actually participates in the process in order to present to himself a spotless bride. That means as men, if you, are, if you don't like the behavior or the condition of your wife, it's your fault. It's up to us to wash them in the water of the word, serve them, love them, care about every aspect of their life, and then watch as we get reciprocated with the context of the scripture. And then we end up in a biblically founded marriage based on scripture and based on Christ, right? Because if we're doing anything different, there's something wrong. So when we, and I listen, I know I was a little harsh when I said it's your fault. 99% of the time, it's your fault. Sometimes a woman just maybe, I, no, I'm not going there. <laughs> what in the world? What is wrong with me, Pastor Russian? I was getting ready to get myself in trouble with like every woman in the room. That's what happens when you talk too much. It's 12 o'clock. So we'll skip that. But anyway, the, the truth is this. In order for a wife to submit willingly, she has to be able to trust her husband. The husband builds trust and relationship by protecting, serving, and washing the wife in the word. Point number three today in the close is this. The purpose of marriage is for us to see someone for all their faults, understand all their weaknesses, even deal with some of their sins and bad behavior, and we still love, and I added a word that's not up there, and forgive them anyway, just like God. Both sides. Wife and husband. We see their faults. And the longer that you're married, the more faults you see. You see their faults. You see their sins. You see their bad behavior. And we decide to love and forgive them anyway, just like God does us. This is where we find that in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. You don't have to turn there. It'll be on the screen. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And what's not up there is the start of the next line, which says, love never fails. Now, what I've just described to you is not human love. What I just described to you is God's love for us. This is how God loves us. And this is how, to the best of our ability, that we're supposed to mirror that love to each other. So on this Valentine's Day, can I tell you this? Marriage is a workshop. God is a carpenter. When you willingly lay down on the bench and he begins to mold you and shape you and sand you and cut things off of you, and he begins to do that work. Loving over God happens over time. But I promise you, the love in your marriage when you first start out grows deeper and deeper over the years. It transforms from a shallow love to a deep love. If we do it God's way.
Here's the, the last thing I want to leave you with is this. Marriage brings out the worst in you. The purpose of marriage is to bring out the worst in you, but it's designed to. Because if God can bring out the worst in you, you can recognize it, you can see it, and you can allow him to change it. And then what happens next is because you allow God to bring out the worst in you, God then brings out the best in you. And we serve and love each other. Would you stand with me today?